What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 66 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike Lynch, and it is my honor to be on this leadership journey with you, is we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. Well, I can't believe it's 2020. Boy, what a what an incredible thought that we're beginning a new decade together. You know, back in 2000, I remember when it was Y2K. You remember that if you were around then? And we're filling up our bathtubs with water. We're afraid the gas isn't going to work and all that kind of stuff and all those fears that started the 2000s. And now here we enter 2020 with hopes, dreams, uh, and we're all really on this leadership journey together wanting to be not just great leaders but great spiritual leaders when this podcast began back in the fall of 2017, I truly did have a passion to let you in on conversations that I was getting to have with incredible world-class leaders, not just about what makes them great, but about the faith that drives each of them. That's the one common denominator each guest, as varied as they have been, have had on this podcast is they all have a faith that is a huge engine in their world and in their leadership. Well, as we kick off 2020, today we get to sit down with somebody that probably is considered one of the gurus of business. His name is Dr. Ken Blanchard. Few have influenced day-to-day management in people and in companies more than Ken Blanchard. He's a sought-after author. In fact, in 2005, he was recognized and inducted into the Amazon's Hall of Fame as one of the top 25 best-selling authors of all time. From his one-minute manager to his raving fan to the book his to his book The Secret and leading at a higher level, man, those are just a few of the classics that Ken Blanchard has written. But Dr. Blanchard has done more than just write business books. Dr. Blanchard has had a faith that's driven him these past few years in who he is and how he leads. He also leads a company called Lead Like Jesus, where he takes the leadership style of Jesus and shows us how to lead like him in all that we do. It's fascinating and it's awesome. I am so excited for you to listen into this conversation today. He was kind. He was uh, present in our conversation. But even more than that, I'm excited for you to hear about some of the things that drive Dr. Blanchard that you may have not known about. So I want you to pull out a pen or pencil. This is one you want to take notes on. I want you to get your thumbs ready to type a little bit. And I want you to listen in to my time with Dr. Ken Blanchard. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. Well, it's good to be with you, uh, certainly, and all the good work you're doing down in the Atlanta area. Thank you so much. Well, you are an icon in business and leadership. Did you ever dream that would be said of you? No, I never did. It was really interesting because, uh, you know, I've written a lot of books, but when I was in graduate school, my faculty told me if I wanted to be at a university, I should be an administrator because I couldn't write. And I found out later <laughs> <laughs> you could understand it and that confused them, you know. They like to get esoteric and all that kind of thing. And so my first job is I was assistant to the dean at uh, the business school at Ohio University. When I got there, he said, Ken, I want you to teach a course. And I had never thought about teaching a course because, you know, if you don't publish, you perish. He said, I don't care about that. But uh, I had done my doctoral dissertation on 
Fred Fiedler, which was the first situational leadership model. Uh, and so uh, he put me in Paul Hersey's department. Hersey had just arrived as chairman of the management department. And after a couple of weeks, I came home and said to my wife, Margie, this is what I ought to be doing, teaching. This is fun. She said, what about the writing? I said, I don't know. We'll figure something out. And so I heard Hersey taught a great leadership course. So I asked him if I could audit it the next semester. And he said, nobody audits my course. You want to take it for credit? You're welcome. And he walked away. And I, I thought that's really something, you know. But I found out later he felt if you audited, you wouldn't do anything. So I decided to take the course. I had to convince the registrar to let me in because I already had a PhD. And, and I wrote all the papers and all that. And in June 67, Hersey comes into my office and he said, Ken, he said, um, <coughs> they want me to write a management textbook. And I've been looking for a good writer like you to be a co-author with me and work with me on it. Would you be interested? I said, wow, that ought to be something. And so we wrote a book called Management of Organizational Behavior. It's in its 10th edition now. I think it sells more today than it did back in the 60s. <laughs> that is that is amazing. That is amazing. To go from somebody they said, what are going to be able to write to really writing is what you're known for. And that's sort of the gift that you've been given through these years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my uh, whole goal in life is to uh, um, create simple truths, Mm. you know, uh, and uh, I think sometimes we want to complicate things too much. And I and and also writing parables is very consistent with what Jesus did. People would ask him a question and he'd tell him a story. And and people remember stories so much more uh, than they do just giving him a concept. That is so good. Is that something that comes pretty natural for you to think in the parable mindset when you're trying to teach a truth? Yeah, it's, uh, it really came from my dad who was a great storyteller. You know, he retired as an admiral in the Navy, but they always would have him be the MC of gatherings and all because he was a great storyteller and he would, you know, bring, bring things out in stories. And so, uh, uh, I remember when I ran for the president in the seventh grade, he said, Ken, uh, he said, you got to tell stories, you know, because people uh, want to hear stories and all. So uh, I started off and I said, you know, uh, to this crowd that they introduced me, I said, as the cow said to the farmer when the milking machine broke down, thanks for that warm hand. <laughs> and the, uh, the crowd went crazy and I, I won the presidency. <laughs> that is fantastic. Your dad was a huge shaper of who you've become in leadership, wasn't he? Yes. And after I won that election, I remember coming home and I was all pumped up. And my dad says, well, Ken, now that you're president, we'll start your leadership training. Uh, don't ever use your position. Mm. Great leaders are great because people trust and respect them, not because they have power. And he said, it's a myth in the military that it's my way or the highway. He said, sure, in battle, somebody's got to call some shots. But he said, if you act like a big deal with your men, they'll shoot you before the enemy. <laughs> wow. Do, do you see that positional leadership is something that a lot of leaders struggle with, that they feel like when they reach that certain level, that just means people will follow? Yes, I think that they think that it's all about uh, you know position power. And I remember I ran into a guy from New Zealand uh, in the airport and I sent him some books and he wrote me a letter a while back. He said, Ken, you know, the business you're in is teaching people the power of love rather than the love of power. Wow. And I think that's, that's really what it's all about. You began to develop your own views on leadership and began to develop to, you took everything your dad taught you, everything you learned and you began to grow in your leadership. What was that process like? Was there a lot of, was there a lot of um, hard to put into words what you were learning? How was that process of you growing into your own views on leadership? Well, it was interesting because I was thrust into a lot of uh, leadership positions uh, when I was young because I went to a 95% Jewish elementary school and Jewish holidays, they put us in all in one room and I, I retired the Goya of the Month Award and well, <laughs> and uh, and then we merged into junior high with a 90, 95% African-American school uh, and uh, went to the 
uh, Supreme Court in 61 to test the neighborhood school. And that was how while busing started. And since I was a basketball player and I was bright, I was uh, won all the elections as a compromise candidate. And so in junior high, I was president of the seventh grade, then vice president of school, president of school. Students asked me to give the graduation speech. And then I went into high school the same track. So I had a lot of chances uh, to develop my leadership with my dad cheering me on and talking to me about it. And so what I realized is that uh, effective leadership is not about you. Mm. It's about the people you're serving. Mm. And, uh, you know, Jesus certainly modeled that. I mean, here he is, the son of God, but it wasn't about him. It was about the people he came to serve and and to to give a different life uh, to. And so that's a hard thing to biggest detriment to, to that is the human ego, mm. you know, which is edging God out and somehow thinking you're the center of the universe and people who are into position power, you know, are really thinking, you know, all the brains are in their office and, and all that really is a problem rather than as a servant leader, you really realize you're only as good as the people who gather around you. You know, you talked about Jesus and leadership. For so many people, they would say, well, my faith is really something that I box up and I do on Sundays, but Monday to Saturday, I don't know if my faith should influence how I'm the CEO or how I'm a salesman or how I'm a principal at a school. What would you what would you say to that thought line? Well, it was interesting. Uh, you know, when the one minute manager came out, uh, it really was so popular. Uh, you know, I was having trouble uh, accepting it. And people would say, Ken, why do you think it was so successful? And I said, I don't know, God must be involved. And I had really kind of moved away from my faith because Margie and I were kind of idealists and we saw a lot of uh, hypocrisy in churches and and all. And so even, you know, as teenagers, if you asked our kids to give you the Lord's Prayer or you'd hurt them, you'd have to hurt them. And, mm. and so when I mentioned that God was involved in the one-minute manager, all of a sudden, people are calling me. So I'm on the Hour of Power with Robert Shula in his heyday, you know. And uh, Bob says to me, Ken, I love the one-minute manager, but you know who's the greatest one-minute manager of all time? Who's, I said, who's that? He said, Jesus. I said, really? And yeah, he was really clear on goals. Wasn't that your first secret one-minute goal setting? I said, yeah. And he said, you and Tom Peters did the management by wandering around. Jesus did. He wandered from one little village to another. <laughs> Anybody showed any interest, he'd praise him, he'd heal him. Isn't that your second secret one-minute praise? I said, yeah. And he said, if people stepped out of line, he wasn't afraid to give him a one-minute reprimand. He threw the moneylenders out of the temple. Isn't that your third secret one-minute reprimand? Wow, yeah. And I went, whoa, that's really interesting, you know. And the minute I had talked about God. Then people started calling me. I get a call when I write a book with Norman Vincent Peale. And I said, is he still alive? I mean, my parents had gone to his before I was born. He was 86 years old. And wow. Mar Margie and I met Norman and Ruth. They said to us, the Lord's always had you on his team. You just haven't suited up yet. Oh, that's you know? so good. So suiting up became the cry. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a, uh, was a really interesting thing. And then when I started to read the Gospels, I just laughed because, you know, here's Jesus hires these 12 incompetent guys. I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't have hired that lot. That's right. <laughs> and turns them into quite a uh, management team is willing to give their lives for the mission and the vision uh, and, uh, and and pretty uh, pretty amazing. And so uh, at, uh, I just realized he was the greatest leadership role model of all time. He was a not only a woman, a manager, he was a situational leader. He was mm. everything you talk about. And, you know, he, he said, even I have come to serve, not to be served. You That's know? right. And, and uh, so uh, amazing model of leadership. And I found out that nobody in churches was really teaching this, you know. And uh, as you were saying, they were, you know, talking about, you know, on Sunday and all. But when you really look at it, if you want to model for how you should raise kids, if you want to model how to run a company, how to run a nonprofit and all. Jesus is the perfect model uh, for that. And uh, it's interesting, uh, uh, I was on a, a program with John Ortberg one time in, uh, in Atlanta, and John's church is in Northern California. And I said, John, why would you fly all the way across the country to 
teach people that Jesus is the greatest leadership role model of all time. And John's a great storyteller, as you oh, yeah. know. And he turns to this crowd and he, he said, let me ask you a question, you know. Uh, and uh, he said, uh, you know, who do you, who, if you were a gambler, you know, 21, 20, 200 years ago, I know some of you don't like gambling at all, but uh, let's just say if you were, where would you have bet your money on lasting? The Roman Empire and the Roman army, or a little Jewish rabbi with 12. Wow. And he said, Isn't it interesting that, you know, 2,200 years later, we're still calling, uh, you know, uh, kids Jesus, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and we call our dogs Nero and Caesar? <laughs> <laughs> that is so, well, that's a great way to think about that. Yeah, he said, I, I rest my case because the important thing about leadership is not what happens when you're there, it's what happens when you're not there. I mean, as a parent, if you're hovering over your kids all the time, you can get them to do what you want. The big question is, what do they do when you're not around? That's the really test of your your parenting and, and your leadership. And I think that's the same with people and organizations, you know. What do they do when you're not around? That's right. What changed most about you from that conversation with Dr. Schuler to who you are today is your faith began to be more important to you. What changed most about you? Well, I realized that I have a teammate. <laughs> you know, it's because, uh, you know, life is not always, you know, smooth and perfect. We, we have problems and we have heartaches and all that. But uh, what I found with my faith is, is I have a partner. Mm-hmm. I have a partner to cry with. I have a partner to celebrate with. I have a partner to, to talk with. Uh, I wrote a book with Wally Armstrong, uh, one of the great golf teachers, called The Mulligan, you know, and golf, a mulligan is a second chance. And what has Jesus given us all the time? Right. He's given mulligans, which is, you know, another word for grace, uh, really. And uh, it's, uh, it's wonderful to, to, uh, to see uh, the, the power of, of that. And so that uh, uh, Wally was telling me that uh, when he gets up in the morning, he, uh, when he's reading his Bible, he, he always has an empty chair. Uh, so he can, Jesus can be sitting there so he can talk to him. And another friend gave me a wonderful thing that when I'm driving alone in the car, I don't turn on the radio. I imagine that Jesus is sitting next to me. That's so good. And I, I talk to him and then I shut my mouth. See, a lot of times people think prayer, praying is all about you talking. no. Uh, you ought to listen once in a while. That's right. And I had an interesting experience a few years ago. The the uh, pastor at our church that I really loved uh, retired was going back east because that's where his kids were leaving. And I was driving home from work one day and I had the empty chair and I'm saying, God, I, uh, what do you think I can do to help the church without Bruce being there and all that? And all of a sudden, a friend of mine told me, you can always tell when God's speaking to you because you'll think of something you never would have thought of yourself. And all of a sudden, I heard, why don't you be the interim pastor? <laughs> you got to be kidding me, really. You know, <laughs> so I got a hold of the head of the search committee. They were looking for an interim while they were going to look. And I said, what do you think if I'd be the interim pastor? They said, you do that? <laughs> oh, my and, goodness. You know, and they had to talk the presbytery into letting me do it, you know. So they wouldn't call me interim pastor. I had to be called interim coach because I'm not ordained. <laughs> but it was really wonderful. And the reason I did it is we had two young pastors who were great preachers, but nobody had ever heard them preach. And we had a great Egyptian pastor who had, a, as an Arabic service, 150 people come to, from down from LA and all for an Arabic service. Best Bible teacher I know. Wow. And the only one that ever had heard from was the executive pastor. And one of the things, you know, I learned, and you probably know this, one of the reasons why there's not a lot of leadership in churches is try giving 45 speeches to the same audience a year. You know, you don't have any free time. I remember I asked Norman Vincent Peale, he retired when he was 80. And I said, Norman, why did you retire? He said, Blanchard, someday you'll realize it's easier to find a new audience than a new speech. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, there's a lot of truth in that one. Yeah, so I set it up so every five weeks, one of the five of us would preach. That's so good. And the congregation loved it, you know, because we all had different styles. 
But since you had five weeks to prepare, boy, you could really nail it, you know. And, that is uh, so good. But I never anticipated being a, you know, interim pastor. <laughs> yeah, I bet when you were beginning your career, somebody had said, you know, you're going to be an interim pastor at some point. You'd have gone, now nah, I think you got the wrong script for me. I don't think that. I don't think that's part of my story. No, it really, really isn't. And, but, uh, you know, with having Jesus as a leadership role model, mm. you know, we kind of look at, you know, the heart of leading like Jesus, the head, the hands and the habits, you know, and, and the heart is all about your character. And the question is, are you here to serve or be served? And that's a pretty, pretty powerful question. And, uh, yeah. So that, uh, and the thing that keeps people from doing it is their ego. And we, yeah. we started in Lead Like Jesus, a 12-step Egos Anonymous program, you know, and because <laughs> it's the biggest addiction in the world because there's two ways that your ego shows up. One is false pride when you have a more than philosophy, when you think somehow you're brighter than, you're, you're smarter than, and all that kind of thing. And the other is fear of self-doubt where you have a less than philosophy. And a lot of people think that, sure, false pride that's an ego problem but how could fear or self-doubt be an ego problem why because you're focused on yourself that's exactly and, right and the uh, anecdote for false pride is humility and the one for fear and self-doubt is to trust the unconditional love of of god you know and uh, so but the question is are you here to serve or be be served you know and if you're here to serve then you really need to, you know you need some habits to help you enter your day slowly, you know, so that you, uh, you know, know who you're modeling that day. You know, a lot of it's, you know, I learned from Norman Vincent Peale. We have two selves, you know, we have an external task oriented self that's used to getting jobs done. And then we have a, a uh, thoughtful reflective self, which self do you think uh, wakes up quicker in the morning, you know? It's the external test. The alarm goes off, you know, and John Ortberg says, why don't we call it the opportunity clock, you know, or it's going to be a great day, but alarm, you know, that's <laughs> and you, so jump, good. you jump into your task oriented self and, and you start running around, you know, you're eating while you're you know, uh, getting dressed and you jump in your car and you're just racing around and, get home at night and you're exhausted and fall into bed. Don't have enough energy to even say goodnight to somebody who's lying next to you the next day. And you're caught in a rat race. And Lily Talman, the great, you know, spiritual leader from, from Hollywood <laughs> once said the problem with the rat race is even if you win it, you're still a rat. You're still a rat. That's exactly right. That is and so good. We talk about the habits of entering your day slowly in prayer and to, and to, you know, who do you want to be today and, and uh, looking at your day. And, and so that you start with your thoughtful, reflective self, not with your external territory self. And then at the end of the day, it's really interesting. I, a friend uh, told me, he said, Blanchard, you influenced my life. And now I know how to end my day, which is you put in a journal. A lot of people, you know, don't want to write journals because, you know, they have see people write in four colors and they do poetry and all. No, all you need to do is journal is put on each day praising what did I do today that's consistent with who I wanted to be and pat yourself in the back and then read directions. What did I do today that I wish I had an instant replay? That's good. And if you track that every day, you'll really be in touch with the parts of your life that you need the good Lord to help you on, you know, where you're maybe not a good listener or a little impatient or if there's a young leader out there and they're beginning their career and they're really wanting to make their mark in business and, and in life as a husband and a father and all those kind of things, why would you encourage them to read about Jesus as your greatest leader? Why would you encourage them to learn more about that? Well, because he uh, modeled the perfect leader, you know I mean? He, you know, took uh, people that, you never would have hired and and put them into roles where they never anticipated and and they gave their lives uh, uh, for the mission. I mean, it was a pretty amazing uh, job. And so, why wouldn't you want a model like like that? And uh, and it completely 
selfless too, you know. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't about him; it was about them, and and uh, also you know glorifying his father's name. You've had a great teammate in Jesus through all these years, and you've had a great teammate in life. In fact, when we kicked off our conversation today, before we went on the air, you were telling me y'all are up in, in, uh, in the area you and your wife met miss Margie, all those years ago, what's it been like to grow through these years in marriage together? Well, it's really been uh, interesting, you know, cause, uh, Margie has a PhD in communications. And, uh, and so, uh, when she was working on that, I was working at the university and, and, uh, I got my full professor with tenure just when she finished her doctor's degree. So we went on a one-year sabbatical leave uh, to San Diego, you know, 44 years ago. <laughs> we just never went back. <clears throat> Margie said, I love Massachusetts, but summer in Massachusetts is two weeks of bad skating, you know. And, <laughs> and so, uh, but uh, when we got out there, we ran into a group called the Young Presidents Organization, which is a amazing group of people. You have to become president of your company before you're 40 years old and have wow. days that you had to have at least 50 people and 5 million in sales. And, and I got a chance to do some sessions with them and they kind of adopted me because they said, you know, you're doing great stuff. What are you going to do at the end of the year? We said, we're going back to the university. And they said, no, you're not. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're going to start your own company. We said, how are we going to do that? We can't even balance our own checkbook. And <laughs> They said, we'll help you. And five of them volunteered as our advisory boards, one from wow. Oregon, one from Mexico, one from Pennsylvania, and one from Illinois, and flew out on their own dime and helped us set up the company and stayed as our advisor for a number of years and got his clients and, and all. Now, this year, we're celebrating our 40th year of our company. And, you know, less than 5% of companies who start, you know, ever last that that long. And, and uh when we started, you know, Margie and I have always known what we're good at and what we're not good at. And so it was obvious that she should be president. Uh, you know, she's kind of a big picture thinker and, and facilitator and all. And I'm a kind of a cheerleader type, you know. And uh, my title and initially was chairman, but I didn't like that. So I changed it to chief spiritual officer. Love it. And my title is to, to cheer people on. And I leave a morning message every uh, day for people where I do three things. One, I tell them who to pray for. And, and we have every faith and non-faith. We get over 300 people and they don't mind when I say Mary's mom is really sick and we need to pray for Mary and her mom and all. And we have a lot of data, the power of prayer. Then I, the second thing is I, I do is if somebody said, Blanchard, I'm going to take everything away you've taught over the years, except one thing, what would you hold on to? I think it's the second secret of the one minute manager, which is about wandering around and catching people doing things right and accenting the positive. And, and, uh, so I praise people, people tell me who have done good things and all. And then I leave an inspirational message on something that I've read or thought about that's, uh, you know, good for, for them all to hear. And, uh, like the other day we have on our wall, the, uh, uh, you know, the guy that wrote, what what all I ever knew needed to know I learned in kindergarten. That's right. Yep. That and he had that whole list of things and and so I got feedback and said, "Is uh, uh, warm cookies and a nap in the afternoon now going to be part of our culture?" Because <laughs> that was they were on his list. And it's really interesting. I uh, we went on the internet and this data that if people take a twenty minute nap. In the afternoon, their productivity and everything goes up. And companies like, uh, um, you know, Microsoft and and uh, Ben and Jerry's and other people, they actually have nap areas, you know, for for people. That so is unbelievable. That is. Do you enjoy doing what you're doing now as much as you did 40 years ago? Yes, you know, and I just celebrated the 59th anniversary of my 21st birthday. Wow. And. Uh, People want to know, when are you going to retire? Well, I wrote a book a few years ago with a head of psychiatrist department at University of San Diego called Refire, Don't Retire. I love Make it. Make the rest of your life the best of your life. And we really looked at, uh, you know, if you remember when Jesus, Jesus lost his parents, um, 
in the temple and they got him and then uh, he went back home with him. It said that he grew, uh, you know, in knowledge, yep. you know, which is intellect. He, he grew in stature, which is physically. He grew in relationship to God spiritually. And then he grew in relationship to man emotionally and all. And so we said, you need to look at those four areas and what are you doing to refire yourself in those areas? How do you keep your mind going? How about your body? You know, what about your spiritual life? What about your relationship to people? And, and that's been a pretty powerful uh, thing you know, to help people. I thought it would probably just be for, you know, retiree types, but we find a lot of them are giving it to their kids in their thirties and forties who are, you know, kind of, uh, you know, stalled and uh, say, you know, hey, you might want to look at this and refire your life. Where you're at now in leadership and all the things you've written and all the things you've learned and all the things you've grown with, if you could go back to just graduated from college, Ken Blanchard, if you could go back and tell him something that you understand now, what would you tell the young man, Ken Blanchard, entering into his work career? I would tell him that life is what happens to you when you're planning on doing something else. <laughs> so good. I think uh, I think God has plans for us. And it's really interesting. People have asked me, well, you know, you look like you've had a pretty successful life. Have you ever had a failure experience? And I said, sure. I When I was getting my graduate degree, I, I really wanted to uh, stay at the university. And I was interested in in the whole area of student personnel to be a dean of students and all. And I went to uh, their big national convention. And I thought that, uh, that one of the problems with student personnel and, and the academic thing is that they're separate rather than working together. Mm. See, the, the student personnel people ought to be the experts in the environment and the, and the faculty should be extras on the curriculum. And so how do we create an environment to so that the professors can do what they do. So all the jobs I was looking at was working with faculty. And I had a great interview at Dartmouth and Wesleyan in Connecticut and Northern Illinois and, and a couple of other ones. And they all were going to invite me to campus, and I never heard from any of them. Wow. So I called the guy at Dartmouth, who I went and got out and got drank with one night. And I said, John, you were going to have me on campus. Why didn't you? Uh, call me and he said, oh, Ken, I feel awful. I should have called you, but he said, you have two terrible recommendations in your placement file. And this was those days when <laughs> you would ask people to write recommendations, but you never could see what they said. And I said, from whom? He said, the dean of students and the associate dean of students. I said, oh, that's really helpful. I said, what did the dean say? He said, Ken Blanche is a wonderful guy, but he's got no academic interest. Don't let him near the faculty, you know? And, and I said, one of the associate deans said, he said, Ken Blanche is a wonderful guy, not particularly intelligent, but a really nice guy, you know. So, so, so I'm dead, you know. And uh, so I went back to the bar uh, where a lot of the clear thinking uh, happened. And <laughs> the guy there had been at Harvard Business School, and I had known him and told him about my situation. He said, well, right, the president of Ohio University, Vern Alden, he had been associate dean of the business school. I know him well and tell him, you know, what you're looking for. And, and uh, he's the one who sent my credentials over to the dean of the business school. And I ended up going out there as assistant, but, you know, it was completely different. I, you know, I couldn't believe I got blown out of the field that I, I wanted to do, but God wow. had a different plan. That's right. Yeah. So if you had ended up in that, if you had ended up at Dartmouth in the job you thought you wanted at that time, what do you think would be different about your life now? If that's the, if that's the track you had taken? Yeah, you know, well, you know, I could have made a difference with a, a group of people there and, and some of their lives and all, but I don't think I would have had the potential impact that, that I've had by, you know, going to a broader audience, you know? And so I, I think God had a different plan uh, for me. I love that. You know, One Minute Manager was the book that really struck a chord and made you in the business world, especially a household name and a company name. Why do you think it struck a chord with so many people? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, 
I was invited, Margie and I were invited to a cocktail party uh, by hosted by Adelaide Brie, and she wrote a book called Visualizations, Directing the Movies of Your Mind. She was one of the first people at self-healing uh, work, and she decided to have a party for all the authors in San Diego, and somehow I qualified because I had this textbook. And we get there, Spencer Johnson was there, and he wrote children's books, you know, a whole series of things called value tales, you know, the, the value of honesty, the story of Abe Lincoln, the value of courage, the story of Helen Keller and, and all. And Margie hand carried him over to me and said, you guys ought to write a children's book for managers. They won't write anything else. They won't read anything else. <laughs> and Spencer was working on a one minute scolding on how to discipline kids with a psychiatrist. And I invited him to a seminar I was doing the next week in town. And he came and sat in the back and laughed and came running up at the end. He said, forget parenting, let's do the one minute manager, you know. And since he was a children's book writer and I'm a storyteller, we decided to write a parable uh, and and not make it real complicated, but yeah. what are the three things that, that people need to know most? You know, what's the 20% that'll give people the 80%? And, and uh, so we never could imagine it would hit that major core, but I think it was because people realized, God, if I, if I do those three things, if I set clear goals with my people so they know what, what their job is, and then I wander around, wander around and try to catch them doing something right and cheer them on. And then if they uh, uh, aren't performing as well, if I go to them and, and redirect their energy, uh, wow, you know, I'll, I'll be a pretty good manager. And so... Wow, that is interesting, isn't it? <laughs> is that as applicable now as it was the day you wrote it? Is that is the concept that the one minute manager and setting clear goals and the leadership by wandering around and the the praising and and working with people or redirecting is that as is that as true now and in 2019 2020 as it was the year it was written? Yes, it's interesting. It came out in '82, you know, and so that's quite a few years ago ago and uh they asked us to we never had an ebook to to reread the book and we might have any changes and so we laughed because first of all you know uh all the people that reported to the woman and manager all were just around his office you know he wasn't managing anybody online and then in many ways it was kind of top down because mm -hmm. he was the one that was directing the goal setting and the praisings and and all and so uh what we decided to do is uh, move it from command and control to today. I think the big change in leadership is young people want side-by-side -side leadership. They don't want your job, but they want to be part of the team. And so we talk about side-by-side -side leadership uh, and we change the one minute reprimand to one minute redirects because that's just much more appropriate language and, and all, but that book is still taking off, you know, and so it still applies, you know, it's a, it's, you know, simple truths, you know, it's a hard to deny simple truths. Just like, you know, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. I was just saying, you know, I mean, why is the Bible after so many years still applicable? It's, it's, it's teaching simple truths. One of my favorite books you wrote years ago, and I remember reading was Raving Fans. And yes. you talked about, uh, that's one of my favorite, probably one of the most go-to books I'll reread yeah. every year or so. What, why do we miss what it takes to create raving fans for a church or a school or a, a business? What's sort of the secret sauce behind creating those raving fans? Well, I think the problem is, and whether you're a pastor or whether you're a business, is that you start looking at, at results, you know, and pastors look how many are in the congregation, you know, and how many are on missions and, you know, they, they count numbers, you know, and what I have found is that the great leaders out there that I have run into realize that their most important customer is their people. Mm -hmm. That if they take care of their people, empower their people, train their people, love on their people, their people will be fully engaged and will go out of the way to take care of your second most important customer the people that use your products and your services, uh, you know, and then they become raving fans of yours, become part of your sales force, and then uh, 
you know, that takes care of the, of the numbers and all of that. You know, when I was interim pastor, I told the congregation, I said, I hate to, to say it, but you're not the customer. Mm. <laughs> you know, the customers are out there. The reason we're coming together is to give each other strength and to training and all so we can go out and model what Jesus wanted us to do. I think too many churches get too uh, interwoven, you know, and, and become kind of social communities and, and forget it's really about what are you doing out there to make a difference in the world for the, the widows and the, the poverty people and the hungers and, the, and all. That's what Jesus was saying. You know, I think a common thread in all the books, I mean, you've written so many classics. One of the common threads is servant leadership, and it's definitely yeah. a huge piece of Lead Like Jesus. Why is servant leadership that that thread that runs through all those books? Well, it's interesting because when I first started talking about it, you know, I, I got a chance to spend a weekend with Robert Greenleaf mm. back in the 60s when I was at Ohio University, he was the president of, he was a friend of the president, uh, Vernon Alden, who got me to come to Ohio U. And when I thought about that, it was really interesting. And then, of course, when I started to look at Jesus, I, I found out later that, you know, Greenleaf was really a great faith-based person, but he didn't mention that in his writings, except I think in a, in a bi- autobiography at, or, you know, at, later on. But I realized, you know, here's the greatest servant leader of all time. Because a lot of times when you talk to people about servant leadership, they think you're talking about the inmates running the prison or trying to please somebody and all. And they don't realize there's two aspects of servant leadership. There's the leadership aspect, which is about vision and direction and values and goals. Because leadership is about going somewhere. And, you know, that's really the responsibility of the hierarchy. It doesn't mean you don't involve people in that. Uh, but what did Jesus say? What business are we in? Come with me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. That's right. And the picture of the future is where we're going is to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then what are the values, you know, because Ten Commandments is too many. And he said, you know, love God with all your heart and all your mind and love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, that that pretty well covers it. But so that's the vision and direction. That's the leadership part. And then once that's clear, then what you do is you philosophically turn that pyramid upside down, mm-hmm. which did, Jesus did symbolically when at the last supper, he got on his knees and he washed the feet of the disciples. And they were a little uncomfortable with him doing that. But what did he say? You know, just as I have done for you do for others, you know, and that, because that's the servant part of servant leadership. Once the vision is set, then you work for them to help them live according to the vision and the mission and the values and, and the goals. And uh, that's why John uh, Maxwell wrote the forward to a book I did recently, which is the biggest book I've written called Servant Leadership in Action, where I got about 45 people to give me their thoughts on uh, servant leadership. And half of them were faith-based people, you know, like like Maxwell and Greg Rochelle from yep. Oklahoma City and, and Phyllis Henry, who runs our Lead Like Jesus ministry. And Phil Hodges and I wrote a chapter on Jesus, the greatest servant leader of all time. But we also had Marshall Goldsmith and, you know, Patrick Lencioni and, and uh, you know, Simon Sinek and Brene Brown and, and all. And, uh, but in the forward... John Maxwell said that servant leadership is the only leadership approach that you can get great results and great human satisfaction. Wow. That's really true because it's not about just pleasing people because you have to have vision and direction and goals and all. And then you turn that pyramid upside down and now you're helping them accomplish them, you know. I love that. I love it. And, you know, it's that it's that thing that when it's done correctly, people leave and not only feel like they're part of a team, but they know that the one who leads the team loves them most. And it is a unique, it is a unique, it's a unique, when you see it, it looks different and you know it. Yeah. 
you know, it gets back to what my dad said, don't use your position. It's about people respecting and trusting you. Uh, why? Because they know you're on their side. And one of the crazy things is that and for you business leaders out there, and I think in church leaders too, is that one of your roles is to manage people's performance. And uh, there's three aspects of that. There's performance planning, where you set goals and objectives. And then there's day-to-day coaching, you know, when you help them accomplish their goals. And then there's performance evaluation, uh, when you sit down and evaluate people's performance over time. And when I go around the world and ask people of those three, planning, coaching, and evaluation, which one takes the most time is universally what? Evaluation. Because they're filling out all these stupid forms on on people. And I think that's really ridiculous, you know. And and, uh, I got to know Gary Ridge, who's the president of WD-40. He was in uh, one of our first cohorts of a master's degree program we have at the University of San Diego on leadership. And, uh, and I would told the story that when I was a college professor, I was always in trouble because the first day of class, I used to give out the final examination. And the faculty would say, what are you doing? I say, I'm confused. And they say, acted. I said, I thought we're supposed to teach these kids. You are, but don't give them the questions in the final. And he said, not only am I going to give them the questions in the final, what do you think I'm going to do all semester? I'm going to teach them their answers. So when they get the final exam, they get A. Life's about getting A's. I mean, what did Jesus want us to do? He wanted us to get A's. You know, he said, here's the vision and here's where we're headed. You know, and and how do we help you get there? And uh, so uh, Gary Ridge said, well, why don't we do that in industry? And so he started this thing at WD-40 called Don't Mark My Paper, Help Me Get an A. Wow. Beginning of the year, every manager sits with their direct report. They call them a tribe there because he... He liked the concept of a tribe because they're always helping each other, you know, and he's from Australia and he was interested in some of the tribes there. And so the tribe leader meets with their uh, tribe member and sets goals and objectives uh, with them. And then using some of the stuff we teach situational leadership and other kinds of things, uh, they move to the coaching thing and say, okay, how do we help you accomplish the goals? And then, uh, it gets to uh, evaluation, but it's interesting. They um, they do two uh, interesting things. Peter Drucker said to one time, nothing good happens by accident. And by the way, interesting with Drucker, uh, he was kind of a Russian Jew and he became a Christian. Uh, and through his relationship, I think with Bob Buford and Paul, mm. when I found out he was a Christian, I said, Peter, why are you a Christian? He had this great German accent. And he says, there's no better deal. And I said, (laughs) who else has grace? He says, justice, you do something wrong, you get the penalty you deserve. Mercy, you get less than you deserve. Grace, somebody else takes the hit. There's no better deal. That's a pretty powerful. That's a profound (laughs) statement. Isn't it? (laughs) You know, if you want to really describe the the whole thing and and uh so it's um it's it's really uh, amazing to look at at uh that and and just realize the 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 power of of applying these kind of concepts and using them and and uh, and all and so uh uh it's just you know changed my life and i think a lot of other people and we're amazed in lead like jesus we're all over the world now we have 50 certified trainers in India. You know, these are business guys who have been there and, and in Africa, people are walking 30 or 40 miles to get to a lead like Jesus encounter. We have more difficulty in America than we have around the world. Cause somehow we're acting like that this country wasn't found on Judeo Christian values. You know, I mean, I tell my people in California, where do you think San Diego came from and San Francisco and Los Angeles, you know, <laughs> let's get a life, you know? And, uh, so, uh, it's just, uh, it, it's a, it's really powerful stuff, but we kind of, kind of forget it. Yeah, you and, do. Uh, it's, it's easy to forget and it's easy. Yeah. It's easy to get caught up. What I love about what you do is you get caught up in things that, 
we feel like complicated seems deeper and smarter and better, but it really, at the end of the day, it's those simple things that Jesus laid out in the Beatitudes about humility and serving and a broken spirit. It's those things that are the qualifications of a leader everybody wants. It's that leader you want to follow. Yes. And, you know, a lot of people think that humility is a weakness. And mm. C.S. Lewis nailed it when he said, people with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think about themselves less. And it's interesting. I have found the leaders that are a problem in churches and businesses and all kinds of organizations are scared little kids inside because they're not comfortable with who they are. Therefore, they're very protective uh, and they want to control things. So people don't know that they really don't know what they're doing. That is <laughs> so true. Are so comfortable with themselves. They can share the platform and share the, the, uh, involvement. That's one been one of the universal things that when we began this podcast back in 2017, we wanted to go after America's greatest leaders and find out what has made them tick and what they've learned. And one of the common, common things we've seen on this podcast, everybody always talks about somebody who saw something in them and poured into them. They, they didn't keep what they had and keep it to themselves. They're like, look, I've been given this gift. I'm going to give it to you. So maybe you can go on and do more. Who is somebody that's done that for you? Who's somebody that's poured into Ken Blanchard? Well, Norman Vincent Peale was a really important one. He was an amazing person in my life. Uh, uh, Paul Hersey, you know, I met early on and, uh, in this field. Uh, Bob Buford had a tremendous impact in in uh, my life. I met him through the Young President's Organization. And it's interesting, I wrote a book recently with Claire Diaz-Ortiz, and, and she was uh, one of the early employees at Microsoft. And, and she came to me and said, in the past, mentors have always been older than you. And, and I think we can learn from you older folks, but I think you could learn from us too. And so one of the things I think in sharing what you know with young people is you're going to be surprised how much you learn too. Boy, that's good. Yeah. So mentoring is a mutual win-win learning opportunity. I think you've been asked hundreds of questions. I've listened to so many of your podcasts and you've been interviewed on platforms all over the world. Has there ever been a question you've always thought somebody would ask you that's never been asked of you? Well, it's interesting, you know, because of I always, you know, do talk about my father. I don't have too many people ask me about my mother. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, she was an amazing uh, person. She invented, invented positive thinking before Norman did. You know, <laughs> I was a big Norman Vincent Peale fan, and I and I she came out after my dad died, and I took her up to the uh, Crystal Cathedral, Shuler's place. And Norman was preaching that day. And wow. And, uh, so after the service, I took her back to meet him. And, and Norman looked at her and he said, Mrs. B, I've been so looking forward to shaking your hand. And my mother says, Shake your hand. I'm going to give you a hug. And he says, Hug. I'm going to give you a kiss, you know. And, <laughs> you oh, know, my well. mom, she told me whenever I was a kid, don't you act like you're better than anybody else but don't let them act like they're better than you. God didn't make any junk. That's There's so a pearl of in everybody. Search for it. And it's interesting when people ask Margie why she fell in love with me. We had a pretty organized sorority and fraternity system in Cornell where I went to school. And if you were in a fraternity, you didn't socialize much with people in other fraternities. She said, uh, and she'd say to people, well, you know, what do you think about Figam? Oh, those guys and all, except Ken Blanchard, because I was all over campus and I have friends in all the different fraternities because I was always looking for that pearl of goodness uh, mm. and and didn't think it it just happened, you know, where I lived. And uh, so uh, she was a, a pretty amazing uh, a person in my life. So interesting. She, uh, her parents were German immigrants and she had three brothers that, quit school when they were 16, you know, because they needed to get jobs and all. She's the only one that graduated from high school. And she 
uh, studied to be an executive secretary. And uh, my grandfather saved up some money to get a little bungalow along the Hudson River because they lived in New York to get out of the heat. And my father grew up at West Point. His father was a doctor at Highland Falls at the gate of West Point. And uh, so uh, my dad always wanted to go to West Point, but when he got out of high school, his father said, no, so I think you should go away. And he said, well, then I'm going to go to Annapolis. <laughs> but uh, he, which he did, he graduated in 24, but they didn't need naval officers in 24. And so uh, they let him out after a senior cruise and he went to Harvard Business School. And so in the summer, he would be staying with his parents up in Highland Falls and commuting into New York to do internships. And my mother was out on their bungalow with his mother, with her mother. And my father get on the train and two stops later, my mother would get on and the train was never the same because she'd have everybody singing and she was just a real character. And my father said to a friend, who's that dizzy flapper? And the guy said, she's not dizzy. That's Dorothy Heidenreich or German, you know? <laughs> and, and so uh, he said, well, can you introduce me? And he introduced her him to my mom and they rode in the city together. And then she had her sneakers on and her shoes. And she said, nice to see. You. And she went off, never thinking to see him again. Here she's a high school graduate. He's, you know, Annapolis and Harvard Business School. He's waiting for her because he had never met anybody like her. Wow. Because her mom, his mom and dad were very bright. And his mom graduated from Bryn Mawr in 18. 95 or something, you know, women who aren't going to school, but uh, they didn't have that personality. Mm. And he's waiting for my mother. And uh, so it was an interesting combination. Uh, so, uh, but uh, so I'm, I'm glad I asked myself that question. <laughs> that's so good. That's so good. And that's one of your gifts. And you see it in your writings and you hear it in your personality that affects your mom. And I didn't know that story that affects your mom had on you. Um, because the world teaches us to find the bad in other people. But then there are those that come along that say there's good. I had a good friend that said, you can't hate somebody when you know their story. If you'll take long it's enough right. to hear their story, there's no way to hate them because there's it's something right. good in there. As you look back, here we are in the in this season of your journey, and you look back at all you've accomplished and all that's happened and all God's allowed you to do. What do you pray that your legacy is? What? How do you want people 20 years from now, 30 years from now, to remember Ken Blanchard? Well, I'd, I'd love to be remembered for making a difference in the world in terms of how people interact with each other and that, uh, you know, getting it where we are. Is it uh, finding the pearl of goodness in, in each other, you know? And, and every time I've seen where people from different countries get a chance to get together they go, wow, that's really interesting. Those people are all right, you know, but, uh, you know, we've got too many people, particularly egocentric leaders who are trying to get us to hate each other rather than to realize that there's goodness in, in all of us, you know, and I, I just think that uh, that's what we need to do is look for that pearl of, of goodness in people, and I hope that people say, you know, Blanchard was always looking for that pearl out there amongst us and and uh, helping us find the pearl in other people. That was a lot to take in, wasn't it? Man, when I got off that call that day, I, I told my wife, I said, there are very few times that I get to meet somebody that is a legend. Dr. Ken Blanchard is a legend. But you know what he was while we spent our hour on the phone together? He was just a great guy. He was a great guy who has a passion for helping others be their greatest, not just in the area of business and leadership, which is his forte, but in the area of faith. I love that he calls himself with the Ken Blanchard companies, the co-founder and the chief spiritual officer. He takes his role seriously in helping others live with their faith out in front. Dr. Blanchard, you blessed me and I know you've blessed everyone who got to tune in to this episode. It will be one that I probably listen to over and over and over. This is a great one to hit pause on and go to the iTunes category and share this podcast on your social media platform or share it with a friend. Um, 
if it helped you, and I hope it did because I know it sure helped me. Wow. What a great start to the year 2020. Well, our next episode won't disappoint either. We're going to get to sit down with Campus Crusade for Christ, Bob Teedy. Bob has written some books that are fascinating in the world on leader of the world of leadership by leading by asking questions. He goes into even how Jesus asked questions to help develop his leadership. It was a fascinating conversation. And I did not know Bob. We had connected online and through social media. He was a unbelievable guest. And I know he's ended up sharing his books with a lot of my friends that are in groups with me. And uh, you're going to want to pick one of those up. Well, if this episode was of benefit to you, please go and leave a rating or review on iTunes or on whatever platform you're listening on. Share it with friends because our goal is to help people, as Dr. Blanchard would say, lead like Jesus. If we can do that, we can change our world one leader at a time and followers and their followers at a time. Man, thanks so much for joining us today. And until we meet again next time, go be the leader that you were created to be in the space and the place that God has put you. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.